to Mark, where we've been studying. We're in Mark chapter 11. We're taking verses 12 through 21 today. It's an awkward spot to stop, but I have that section plotted out for us today uh, for, a, for good reason. But what we studied last week um, was the triumphal entry. And so the triumphal entry marks the beginning of what we as believers call the Passion Week or the Holy Week. And so we call it the Holy Week because this is the week of events that take place leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. The triumphal entry was like, the, it, it was the beginning of this, the, the beginning of the week where Jesus comes riding in on a colt, the colt of a donkey. He starts this parade route, shall we say, at, Mount, at the Mount of Olives. This is uh, traditionally where a lot of people would begin this temple worship experience because you could buy uh, sacrifices there and, and take them to the temple. So Jesus, in this triumphal entry, begins at the Mount of Olives. People are recognizing him in a specific way in the hopes that he is this anticipated Messiah. And there's lots of different ideas on what that meant to a lot of different people, as we discussed last week. But they said something very specific. They said, Hosanna. And that's a word of praise that means save now. They're saying, Hosanna, save us, save us now. Then they said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. As in, Hosanna, save us now, this one who comes in the name of the Lord. Then they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. As in, blessed is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord, who's ushering in this kingdom from our father David, a descendant of King David that was believed to be who the Messiah would be. And they're going to restore Israel to its golden age like when King David was reigning over Israel. And then they say, Hosanna in the highest. Save us now in the presence of God in the highest. So they were saying very specific things to all be in unanimous agreement that this is the guy we think is going to be this Messiah. And so this big moment where they're throwing down palm branches and tall grass and, and leafy branches. Some people are taking off their cloaks and putting it over the road to roll out this red carpet as Jesus goes from the Mount of Olives to the temple. An amazing moment. And then it ends so abruptly. Did you notice that? Let me read verse 11 to you. That's where we stopped last week. It says, And, and he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple... And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this big moment, he finally gets to the temple, and it's, it's almost as if it's like, well, that was fun, but it's getting late. I guess I'm going to head back up. <laughs> but that's not exactly what was happening here. He gets to the temple, and he's surveying, and he's planning out what he's going to do the next day. Because when he's looking at this temple, he is not happy at what he sees. He is really unhappy about the activity that was taking place in the temple. And so he stood there, he surveyed, he calculated, he planned, and he says to himself, I'm going to go back to Lazarus' house in Bethany. I want to get a good night's sleep, and I'm coming right back here because i got some things I want to do and some stuff I want to say. And that's what we're studying today. This is just... This is kind of, I mean, if you can imagine being a first century Jewish person who was raised in, this, in these rituals and in this culture and who would be anticipating this Messiah. This, here's how disorienting 
Jesus could be to them. What they expected was someday this Messiah would come riding into town on a white horse, puffing out his chest and flexing, saying, I'm the king you've been waiting for. But that's not what they get. They get this humble, humble carpenter on the colt of a donkey in a, in a posture of peace and humility. And he doesn't come to save them in the way that they think they need saved. He comes to judge them in a way they didn't know they needed judged. And here's what we're going to read about today is this judgment that Jesus has over the temple. He's going to cleanse the temple. This is that iconic moment in which we, uh, even non-believers know this moment when Jesus is cleansing the, te the, the temple, flipping over the tables, getting everybody out of there. We're going to talk about why he did those things and the purpose of those events. But there's this little moment we got to study first. Before we study this iconic moment of Jesus overturning these tables at the temple, there's this real quick moment that's really important. It's a visual metaphor of what Jesus is about to do at the temple. It's this moment with a fig tree. Read with me here in verses 12 through 14. Jesus is about to curse this fig tree before he cleanses the temple. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Okay. What did this poor little fig tree do? <laughs> what are, <laughs> here's what's happening here. This is a visual metaphor of what Jesus is about to do in the temple. It literally happens, but it's an object lesson to his disciples who are standing nearby to show how he felt about what he saw happening in the temple after that triumphal entry. So he, treat, he, he speaks to this fig tree and curses this fig tree in the same way he's about to speak to the people at, at the temple and curse that temple. And we're going to talk about why. First of all, it helps to know a little bit about a fig tree. I'm not a botanist, just a, a, that disclaimer out there, uh, but I can read. And when I studied what botanists say about fig trees, here's what I found out. There's actually two crops. First of all, fig trees are everywhere in Israel, all over the place. I mean, the, the, the countryside is just littered with fig trees. And fig trees had, had, had two crops. There was an early spring crop, and those figs were not as good. Those are the figs that would grow on the branch that grew the previous year, okay? That harvested a, a good crop the previous year. Those old branches uh, in early spring would have uh, a, a new crop of figs, but they weren't the desired ones. They, they weren't as good as the second crop that would take place in late summer. Because by the late summer, these fig trees would have new branches with new leaves and new figs, and that's when you harvested the figs, and that's whenever that, those were the desired figs. Well, Mark just told us something, didn't he? This wasn't the season for figs. So we're not talking about that late summer crop. We're talking about that early spring crop of figs. Jesus sees this fig tree off in the distance, kind of like he would have seen the temple off in the distance. This fig tree, he, he's hungry. This could have 
than some sustenance for him, right? Some breakfast, all right? It's, it's, it's not the good crop of, of figs, but it's part of your complete breakfast nonetheless, so you can get some kind of nutrients out of it. And so he sees this, and just like he saw the temple from a distance, and then when he gets up close, even though it was in full leaf and should have had figs, there was no fruit there. It was fruitless. Just like when he went to the temple, expecting there to be fruit of worship, but it was completely fruitless. So this, again, he, he says that when he got to the fig tree, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And so this is, again, this is Mark's way of saying, hey, I know it's not, I know it's not late summer. I, I recognize when figs are supposed to be on the trees. That's not what this is about. This is a metaphor, something that Jesus did and said, and it was an object lesson for the disciples who were watching. And it's also interesting, too, when you read in the Old Testament, a lot of times Israel was spoken of like a fig tree. And when they were behaving badly, they were spoken of like a fig tree that didn't bear any fruit. And so this is already common language that a Jew would have known reading books like Hosea and Jeremiah in the Old Testament. This is familiar language now being played out uh, before their eyes. And Jesus, frustrated at this fig tree, says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Again, don't humanize the fig tree. <laughs> this is what we do, right? Fig trees don't have feelings. We got to remember that, all right? Uh, you know, if you're like, oh, poor little fig tree, stop it. Uh, fig tree, he's not being unfair to the fig tree, so we don't have to feel bad for the fig tree in the same way you don't have to feel bad about your grass after you mow the lawn, right? You're just cutting the lawn. Well, um, yeah, don't develop feelings for the fig tree. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is Jesus is teaching his disciples an object lesson. It, it was teaching them what's about to happen at the temple. May no one eat of the fruit from you again. He's about to go curse the temple. Oh, and by the way, the temple is cursed and it was torn down. It was destroyed in 70 AD by a Roman general named Titus and it's, it's leveled. No one's ever had any fruit there since. It's still, the, the curse holds true. This is, this is uh, Jesus um, telling us that there's, there's no more worship taking place here. Let's, okay, so let's watch how this plays out. Here's, here's this icon. Now, now that we know that, now that we're set up with the fig tree, now we can start to wrap our mind around the events of the cleansing of the temple. Read 15 through 18 with me. It says, and they, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of, of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Okay. First of all, it helps to understand the architecture of the, uh, of, of the temple in order to understand what's happening here. So think of the temple like an onion, right? Onions have layers. Well, the temple was kind of built like that. So the innermost, innermost portion of that temple was the Holy of Holies. This is where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. The, the, the Ten Commandments were in there. The manna is in there. This is, this is the Ark of the Covenant, a very sacred thing. And so the only 
person in all of Israel that could enter the Holy of Holies was the high chief priest. And only he could go in that room, and only once a year. This was a, the most sacred place on the planet Earth. And so, Holy of Holies is in the middle of that temple. When you go out to the, to the area beyond that, again, if we get to the next layer of the onion here, we, we have the court of the priests. Well, as the name implies, the only people who were allowed to go in the court of priests were the priests. If you weren't a priest, you can't go in there. Beyond that was the court of Israel. And the only way you could get into that portion of the temple was to be a Jewish male. And if you were a Jewish male, you could get into that area. Beyond that was the court of the women. This was exclusively, uh, or you had to at least be a Jewish female to get into that portion of the temple. And then beyond that was the biggest portion of the temple uh, property, which would have been the court of Gentiles. Anyone is allowed in there who is a believer to participate in temple worship. A Gentile, again, that's just a name for anyone who's not Jewish. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. That's, that's how black and white they looked at the world. You were Jewish or you were a Gentile. So we're all Gentiles here. We would have been allowed in just that opening, that beginning area of the, of the temple property. And so they took these divisions really, really serious. And so they would have had you know, their own soldiers there, you know, protecting certain barriers and making sure that the rules were followed. There were big plaques. Uh, you, you, when you walked into the court of the Gentiles, be, uh, be at, at the next layer of the onion, uh, the court of the women, you had to at least be a Jew, Jewish female to go beyond that point. There would be these big plaques warning the Gentiles. If you go beyond this point and you're a Gentile, it, it will end in your immediate death. So, so welcome to the temple. <laughs> we will stab you if you go to the wrong place. I mean, that was kind of what was happening there. Uh, they took it really serious. And so, so we have all these divisions and things like that. Now, and, and you would be bringing your sacrifice again to the temple. So when it came to sacrifices, you could bring your own sacrifice. You want to bring your, your ox uh, to be sacrificed, you could do that, or your lamb or a pigeon or things like that. But, you know, you're traveling all that way. For a, for a lot of people, you're traveling so far to get to the temple that it, it wasn't ideal, it wasn't very practical to bring your own uh, sacrifice. And if you did, here's, here's where they get you. If, you. if you took that ox the 70 miles or so uh, from up north down to the, to the temple, it had to be inspected. You can't just sacrifice any old animal you want here. This has to be inspected. It has to meet certain standards, and the priests would in do the inspection. And so they would take a look at that and be like, hmm, yeah, that, there's, there's a blemish here. You're going to have to buy one anyway. They really wanted you to buy one there, right? They really wanted you to buy their sacrifices. Ah, that one's mm, that's not going to do it, but we'll take that off your hands here. But you, you're going to have to buy one over there. Uh, before you make your sacrifice. You, you see where this is going, right? And the price for their sacrifice was a lot more than what you would have paid for the one you brought from home. Okay, so for the same reason when you're at a Major League Baseball game, the beer's $15, right? Because <laughs> they got you, all right? When you were at the temple and you had to buy their sacrifice, you're paying like four times the amount 
you would normally pay for this animal so that you could participate in temple sacrifice. And so whenever you're, uh, you're purchasing your sacrifice there, man, it was, it was a booming monopoly. Now, I mentioned this earlier. This is one little change that's really important for us to understand just why things panned out the way they did. I mentioned earlier that at the Mount of Olives, where Jesus started that triumphal entry, normally, normally that, traditionally, that is where you would have purchased your sacrifice, and you would have taken that same route from the Mount of Olives that Jesus took in his triumphal entry, and then you would have ended up at the temple with your sacrifice that was already inspected and already purchased up at the Mount of Olives. And so temple worship, in a sense, began at the Mount of Olives where you purchased your, your animal in preparation for this big sacrifice. But see, a, a change took place. The Sadducees, those stinkers, uh, along with the Sanhedrin, that would have been like the ruling council of Jerusalem, they were like, nah, you know, this could be a little bit more lucrative if we move those uh, sacrifices down to the temple. We could get even more people, more dependent upon our sacrifices that we're providing for them. We can raise those prices up, and we can make a killing here. And so they moved all the sales of those animals down to the, to, that is a new thing. That is a new thing that's taking place there. So Jesus, he starts at the Mount of Olives. He may have already been able to sense that change had taken place, right? Oh, the, the, there's not as many animals here being sold, or, or there, maybe there's none. And then he makes his way all the way to the temple. And th now that's where all the hustle and bustle and exchange of all of these animals are taking place. And he is furious. How dare they take all of those animals and all of, those, all of that business into the temple courts? That's what's going through Jesus' mind at this point in time. He just, he's kind of, when he was surveying the night before, he's literally thinking, oh, no, you did not. You did not just do what I think you just did. This is why he's, it, it, he's, it sets him off. Okay, now the, San, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, they, they profited off the animals, but they did it in a couple other ways too. Whenever you went into the temple, now the rules have changed. You go to the temple to purchase that animal. You can't purchase that animal with a coin that has Caesar's name on it or has his face on it. That's blasphemous. We're in the temple courts. You have to exchange that currency for our currency. And you better believe the exchange rate on that currency was incredibly high. I don't know if you've ever gone to another country and you gotta, you're just like at the mercy of the exchange rate, right? Well, same thing was happening there in the temple courts now, and they jacked up those prices because you were only allowed to pay for those sacrifices with their currency uh, there in Israel. Same thing, every Jewish male, 20 and older, was expect, expected to give a half shekel temple tax. Well, you, if you got to pay your temple tax, you can't do that with one of Caesar's coins. you got to do it with a shekel. And so they had to exchange all of that out. So that all these different ways in which they're able to profit, I mean, they're just raking in the cash. They're making bank. Business is good until Jesus shows up, ruins it all, curses them like that fig tree. It says he drove out all of those who sold and those who bought he, and he would, he would not even allow anyone to carry anything in the temple. You know, we, we have these, these uh, images 
from the flannel graph in Sunday school growing up where it was just about, you know, how dare you take advantage of these people and he's, wh he's whipping the animals, getting them out of there. And, and it's not just about people getting taken advantage of. It's not just about that for Jesus. It, that's part of it, no doubt. But none of that activity was supposed to be taking place in the court of the Gentiles. He was furious that they were using the house of God for something it wasn't designed to be used for. This was sacred space, specifically designed for people to arrive and to be in awe of God, to be in contemplative worship and prayer with God. He quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. See how he, he uh, quoted that verse very specifically. This is the court of the Gentiles. It's literally to be a house of prayer, literally for all the nations. Any and everyone's allowed in here, but it's to be a time of prayer in here. So he's furious. You're, you're ripping off the Gentiles and their experience. Not just financially, but they, they can't even participate in sacred worship. And there's no reverence there whatsoever. So he's furious about this. I mean, imagine being a, a Gentile. You've converted, you've converted to, to Judaism. You've, you've made your pilgrimage from who knows where to get to the temple, to have this experience, to worship at the temple, to show your reverence and love and, and, and contemplative prayer towards God. And you get into the, the court of the Gentiles, the only place you're even allowed to go. And it's practically indistinguishable from the marketplace anywhere else. There's nothing special about this area. This is just like downtown Jerusalem. There's, there's nothing different between this and any marketplace I've ever been to. It was fruitless. It was completely fruitless. No reverence, no prayer, just noise. Again, just like that fig tree, man, it looked really good from a distance. There really should have been fruit there. It's reasonable to expect the fruit to be there, but when, when you got there, there was no spiritual nutrients whatsoever, just the hustle and bustle of people exchanging money, and making money, and, and buying, inspecting animals, and just, just so much noise. This is why Jesus cursed the temple. What an opportunity for you and me to reflect on what we're even doing here right now, right? I think that's the thing, one of the main things you and I need to be thinking about. You want there to be conviction right now? Do you want to repent? Do you want to think differently? You want to be challenged? Do you want to be changed having been here today? This is some really practical life application here, right? This isn't the temple. This isn't even a church building. But we, we are God's people. We are the church. We're the temple, right? Paul, when he would teach Christians in the first century, he would tell them, you need to think of yourself you are where the worship takes place, right? You are the temple. This is how he would communicate to Christians. Let me read to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you, and every time I read you, know that it's plural in the Greek. He's speaking to a group, believers, Christians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's where the worship and the reverence, it, it's collectively as we gather together. Are you being careful with this experience? Are you being careful with this experience? You are, you are the temple. 
We not we take that verse out of context all the time. My body is a temple, and I'm going to exercise more. That, that's, shut up. That's not what it's about. <laughs> it's not, not, not what Paul's talking about, but yes, exercise. No, he, he, he's speaking to Christians, saying, when you gather together, you are the church. No matter if you're in a field somewhere, no matter if you're hidden in someone's basement in China, no matter if you're gathered at a, at a, a magnificent structure, when we, God's people, gather together collectively, we need this gathering for spiritual nutrients, and we should expect there to be the same sort of intent and reverence that, were expected, that was expected of Jews when they entered the temple in Jesus' day. It should be a heart of worship. So ask yourself, with what intent did you arrive here today? What did you expect to gain from this? It all matters, uh, you know, when you, when you look inside and reflect inwardly. What's, what's going on in my mind? You know, collectively, if we don't gather with this heart of worship, this has no value. It doesn't matter what facility. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if, if we were able to build a new structure and have a beautiful church facility somewhere and, and, and quadruple the size of our gathering. If people aren't gathering there with the right intent, if people aren't gathering there with the right sentiment, the right heart, it's worthless. Isn't it funny, though, that we tend not to judge churches that way? What do we say? Oh, man, when we, they got some amazing facility. Wow, God's blessing them. When they got thousands of people who gather there, they must be doing something right. Really? You can, just, you can judge that they, they must be doing something right just merely on the attendance or the way that the facility looks? I know when pastor, well, I go to a lot of pastor gatherings, I, get, I go to monthly pastor gatherings, I go to pastor conferences, and I'm, I'm, I interact with pastors all the time, meet new pastors all the time. It never fails. Pastors are obsessed with asking this one question within the first 10 minutes of meeting you. How big's your church? <laughs> I can't even, I've lost track of how many times I've sat across from a pastor having lunch, and they ask, how, how big's your church? Now, you know I love messing with people, so I lie all the time just to mess with them, just to make them feel insecure. Because <laughs> sometimes lying is fun. And so I, I was with a group of pastors that I, it was the first time meeting them last fall. And a couple of these guys, uh, are, I don't know, maybe 10 years younger than me, and we're, we're sitting across, and they're, they're newer pastors, and they're pastoring a church, and sure enough, here it comes. What, what, what's the size of your congregation? And, you know, I'll just be like, well, you know, we're in a real small town and, and stuff, so we only run about... 2,000, 2,200, somewhere around there, you know, and you, every time, like, every time I drop that on somebody, they're like, oh, oh, you, are you Moses? You know, like, wow, man, mega church pastor, this is everybody take a knee, right? We're so, so caught up in that, and then they're so relieved when I'm just like, no, I'm just messing with you. My church is pathetic, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know what? If we judge churches based on their attendance and based on their facility, how foolish is that? How biblically uninformed is that sentiment? 
We're talking about a gathering here in Scripture of millions. Two to three million people are gathering in Jerusalem. We're talking about an offering when you factor in the temple tax, when you factor in the money changers, when you factor in the, the, mo the money that they're making off the, the livestock. You're talking about an offering that comparatively would dwarf any offering at any church anywhere on the planet. And it was worthless. Jesus cursed it. It was repulsive to him because it was void of the content that should have been there. It was void of the behavior that was expected of people when they were there. It was void of the sentiment that God desires. And all of those things he desires of us right now. It's the same expectations right now that they had on those temples. So you better believe, regardless of what a church, this is why I'm not even worried about looking impressive in a worldly sense. I don't care we don't have full band up here today. I don't care if we we're missing the guitar solo. That's not what's impressive. That stuff doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. It's the heart of worship. If you can't worship with uh, one person and one voice, what makes you think you can worship with the full band? Why does that even matter? What's it matter? It's, it's what's going on in our hearts and our minds. That's what matters. Now, I don't want to be overly legalistic. I thought about, oh, what, are, what are some things I can just give people on a Sunday morning so that we could work on this? Because we all collectively, we need to work on this. We, we need each other in this. We, we need to encourage one another to work on this. Man, I started right now, oh man, I got like eight or nine things, practical things that we, I got to tell them this, I got to tell them this. And I, I kind of boiled that down to two because I got like, it would have turned into a, a whole another sermon series. But it just two, th two really, really simple things. Don't overcomplicate this. Just two really practical things that you can do every Sunday to make sure you can get to a heart of worship, to give you a better chance at it. I'm not naive enough to think that you're going to nail this every Sunday, right? Sometimes people are just coming in here just wasted, just exhausted spiritually. You're hanging on by a thread. That's fine. I want you to come on those Sundays too. But if you really want to make the most, even when you're in that frame of mind, here's two practical things that you can do to be in that heart of worship. One, and I'm not shaming anybody right now, bring your Bible with you. Now, I know some of you, you have it on your phone, you have it on your tablet, and, and, and that's good. Like, I like having my, th I'm just, I'm old school in that sense. When I read a book, I can't even read on a Kindle. Like, those are worthless to me. I have to have the actual book in my hand. Because I, I like to, I like to circle in it, I like to highlight, I like to write notes and all that kind of, I can't do that on a Kindle. And um, that Kindle's probably listening to me, it makes me paranoid. No, I'm just kidding. But you need, you need your Bible you need your Bible because that's where God's word is. And so it, it, when we gather together, we're going to be reading out of this every single time. And this not only helps you get into a heart of worship, it helps you to critique all of the words that are coming out of my mouth. I am not the end-all expert on everything. I don't get everything right. I don't have perfectly sound doctrine. I'm not an expert theologian. Nobody is. We individually as believers and collectively as believers are to discern everything that's said from this pulpit through this lens. This is how we know if what I'm saying is right or if what I'm saying is wrong. I sit under the authority of Scripture just like you do. And so this is how we discern one another and discern pastors from the pulpit. Yes, you should critique everything every pastor says from every pulpit. It's not being overly critical it's being obedient to God's word. And so when, it, when, a, when a passage of scripture is being preached, 
something that I do when I get to sit in the congregation and, and Joe or Chris are preaching, I'm cross-referencing. I'm looking at the little notes at the bottom. I'm reading the other passage of scripture that's connected to this. Like, you know, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, so I'd be back there looking and reading Isaiah. I want to understand that in its context. But also, whenever I'm studying a passage of scripture, we're just taking verses 12 through 21 today. What's happening around that verse? Context is everything, and pastors are notorious for taking verses out of context and saying all sorts of silly things that don't make any sense whatsoever. You can guard yourself against that by understanding the context within which every paragraph lies. You need that. Bring your Bible. It's such an easy thing to do, and it's a helpful thing to do. Um, so, you know, and I don't, I don't want to, I'm not trying to shame anyone, but I, I don't want to be naive either. For a lot of you, this is the only time you'll study scripture all week long. It's only when you come to church on a Sunday morning. And if that's where you're at, that's where you're at. I'm not here to preach a sermon on that today, but if that's where you're at, okay, maximize that time then. If the only time you crack open the word of God is Sunday morning with me at the journey, maximize that time by bringing your Bible, opening it in front of you, and critiquing every word that comes out of my mouth uh, as you study the word of God. Here's the second thing you can do. This one is so important, and it's not rocket science either. Pray before you get here. Pray before you get here. Again, what is your intent, intent upon arriving here today? Are you praying for that heart of worship? You know, on a Sunday morning, sometimes I wake up, I don't want to preach. Sometimes I wake up, I, I don't want to play the role of, I don't feel like it today. But I start with prayer, because that's where a heart of worship begins, with prayer. And that's obedience. And I know that you guys, sometimes you wake up and you're like, I don't want to go to church today. I don't want to do this. I'm exhausted. I had a terrible week. I don't feel like it. I don't feel good. Start with prayer. Start it there when you open your eyes on a Sunday morning. Close them again. And pray. You don't have to close your eyes when you pray. But just start with prayer. Interact. Start interacting in this heart of worship to God as you're laying there in bed. Pray for the leadership of this church. Lord knows we need it. But you know, pray for the people around you. Again, a lot of you today, you, just, you didn't even have the strength to pray. You don't have the strength to even think right now. For those of you who do have that strength, pray for them. Pray for, you have an obligation, a responsibility, an obligation that you have as a believer is to be a part of the local church and to serve those people. And one of the ways that you serve the people that you worship with is by praying for them. When Paul talks about encouraging one another, he talks about encouraging one another in two very specific ways. It's not, oh, hey, you look pretty today. That's not the type of encouragement he's talking about. He's talking about encouraging them specifically through the word of God, reminding them of scripture, teaching them scripture, and through prayer. Encourage people that you worship with. Encourage the church in those two very specific ways. And if you can't pray and you can't bring your Bible and you just don't have the strength, Drag your butt in here. We'll pray for you. We'll share our Bibles with you. And then maybe you'll be strong enough next week or next year or whatever. And then you can help other people too. That's what the church does. That's what the church does. Again, I had like eight more, but that's not what the sermon is about. So that's a mini tangent. We got to get back to this. Let's read verse 18 again, and we'll take it through 21 because we're getting back to that fig tree. I'll read verse 18. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. 
for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So there's back, we're back to that visual metaphor. It begins, the temple cleansing begins and ends with this fig tree. It's been cursed. Now, theologians will say more than any other thing that Jesus did. We know that people were plotting his death before this point. We studied that in Mark. But more than any other thing that he did, what got him killed was this moment in the temple. Ultimately, that's what got Jesus killed in, in, in the worldly sense. He messed with man-centered worship. Jesus went up in that temple and messed with their value system. He messed with the things that men find impressive, and they wanted to kill him for it. In reality, that temple was just like that fig tree. It was cursed. It's over. No more worship would take place there, and it hasn't happened since. There's a mosque on top of it right now as we speak. It withered away to its roots because Jesus cursed it. You know, that's the only destructive miracle we see in the entire uh, New Testament. Of, of all the miracles of Jesus, only one is destructive. It's this fig tree. Again, it's that visual metaphor to tell us about how Jesus felt about the temple. It was utterly void of life. It was completely fruitless, and they were completely self-deceived. What about you? What about you and the heart of worship we are called to? Is there any fruit there? Well, even if it's that pitiful early spring crop, that's something. Let's build on that. Let's encourage one another. But we want to have the fruit of worship. We need to be the church. So may this fruitless worship that was taking place there never happen here. Let's pray. Let's take that heart of worship into, into a time of communion as we do each and every Sunday at the journey. Lord, we're so grateful for these moments because we need to change our perspective on things. Each and every one of us here, Lord, no matter if we're 10 years old or 100 years old, we need to change more. There's always room for growth. And Lord, we know that apart from your spirit and apart from your word, we will never bear any fruit, no matter how impressive we look, no matter what we accomplish, and no matter what, what the name is on the sign out front of the building, we are desperate for you, Lord. As we go into a time of communion, may we enter so with the heart of worship and humility. We aren't bringing our sacrifices before you. You have been the sacrifice for us. You provided the sacrifice that we could never come up with. We could never afford, no matter what. You sent your son to die for us, and he is our righteousness, he is our atonement. We are made right with you because of you. We were saved from you, by you. Lord, help us to be in that heart of worship, to, to, to make much of you and what you have done, Lord, that your gospel would save us and that your, your gospel would sanctify us today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.